This is Trey Smith with the Dig Podcast. God bless every last one of you on the other side of the screen. We should read our Bible as men digging for buried treasure. The Bible is the world's most popular enigma. Its secrets lost to cultures beneath the sands of time. Or is it? It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God wants you to seek, to read his word, to to look for that knowledge. He wants you to do that. And the people at Nicaea, they like chopped out 80 books of the Bible. We need to bring those back. There's more bad guys in this thing than a Bruce Willis movie. Oh, yeah. Let's back it up here. I, I love the intro to your show because it's exactly right. There's these nuggets of gold in his word. You guys always sign the show. You, you gotta dig it. Dig it. Show us your nuggets. God, our creator, lies outside of time and space and matter. I feel like God's be like, hello, McFly. You ain't got it so far, then. There are secret societies think that they are the descendants of the giant. I mean, isn't, isn't this exciting? I mean, you read it, it's like, wow. Nephrology Roundtable. But these angels were taken to help immediately. Do not pass gold and act like $200. You're out of the game. Dirty hands means clean theology. Can you dig it? What's going on, all my local guys and gals and long distance pals? We're back. Back. What's wrong, Steven? Nothing. Every time. I Every time. time. Every time, it's ludicrous. You just need to sit, stand outside, and he hides his face because he, he does. He, he turns so around, just joy giggles. Out of my my opening. <laughs> I think I'll have to wait and start coming in after you say it. <laughs> uh, well, what's going on? What's new? Nothing, buddy. Same old, same old. Work, work, work. You know how it goes. This is our this is our break from that, where we get to actually dive in even more to you know God's word, and that's what it's all about. So. Anytime we get a chance to do that, it's a good thing to do. Yeah. I tell my wife this is the the adult version of the He Man Woman Haters Club. With, <laughs> there you with, go. With the Bible He Man Woman Hater. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll be Alpha Alpha. Okay. You spanky Ben? Sure. That was, Steve, who are you? Darla? I, I don't da- even know. Uh, I don't even Darla. remember anybody else. Yeah. Darla. Darla. <laughs> oh, Darla. <laughs> You gonna give me some sugar later? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's open up in prayer. I guess it's my turn. Eh? I guess being went last time. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for me, blessed that you've given us. Thank you for another day and opportunity to dive into your word. And we we just thank you for uh, all the things you reveal to us and how you draw us in closer to you with your word. We're so thankful for that. There's so many countries around the world that uh, don't get to have your word and don't have it uh, in their language and their tongue father uh, we are extremely thankful for that and we never want to take that for granted 
And we thank you and it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, one thing we were talking the other day, we hadn't talked about giants in a while. It's been a bit. You know, the Nephilology round table. Ooh. You like that, don't you? That Nephilology. <laughs> I wish I'd say I made that up, but no, I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> but we actually have a, 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 a guest, an expert guest. You know, what do they say? The, the 10,000 hour crew guest. Uh, Man. Yeah. It's a lot of hours. <laughs> so uh, introduce yourself and t- tell the guests who you are. All right. Uh, first of all, fellas, uh, Justin, Stephen, Ben, thank you for having me on. My name is Ryan Peterson. Uh, I, I am a Christian, Bible-believing Christian, first and foremost, but I am on here primarily because I'm author of two books, Judgment of the Nephilim and the sequel, The Final Nephilim. And they are awesome, by the way. They are so good. I, I tell you, we've talked. We we already thank talked you. a little bit about this, but the fact that you you break it down strictly from the the scriptural point of view, where you're not using those extra biblical sources that a lot of people use, and the other, um, pretty much anybody else who talks about the Nephilim will always reference Enoch, will always reference uh, Jasher or the Book of the Giants. They always reference these extra biblical texts, but you keep it scriptural. And I think that's really important, and I think that's one of the reasons that it makes your book such an important read on this subject. Yeah, thanks. And, um, you know, it was important to me because I felt that once I started really digging deep into this topic, like many people going down rabbit holes, watching documentaries, reading books, um, by all the other great authors out there, uh, Michael Heiser, L.A. Marzulli, all those guys, I, I read and watch all their content. I just felt there was a real need to make a book that was making the case for the supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6 solely from Scripture. That way, uh, one, you can bring it into any church, because I think it's something that the church is starting to engage in. But for the most part, you know, 95 to 99 percent of churches aren't going to touch this stuff, aren't going to touch Genesis 6 from the supernatural side of things. And so I felt like this is a way that you can, whether it's a sermon, a Sunday school, a Bible study, it's, it's establishing that this account is a part of the Bible, that we didn't get it from an apocryphal book. We got it straight from scripture. And not only is it in the Bible, it's a very significant part of the entire narrative of our, of our redemption. Yeah. A good friend of the show, uh, Tim Stedman, he, he wrote a book and he actually, uh, focused on, um, uh, how believing and studying in the Nephilim enlarges the faith. You know, and his book was called Answers to Giant Questions, and uh, it was really good. And he went into how, you know, it's not just something cool or weird, you know, how all these things rotate around and enrich your faith. And, that, and that's something that I think that you've, uh, you've done very well with these books also. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Um, I'm glad you appreciate that. Praise the Lord. And, and really, and that's the thing, too, is that I agree uh, with with Tim's conclusion that it does help your witness because it makes God more understandable. Right. It's so easy when you speak to people who question the Bible, who challenge the Bible. And I've had lots of conversations like that. And what are the two of the first things they bring up? The flood and the wars in Canaan. How could God just kill 99% of the human population with the flood? And then why do you have these wars in Canaan where God's saying, kill women, kill children? You know, it, it, it makes God seem irrational, evil, just wicked. 
And so when you understand that the flood was actually a rescue, it was saving the last remnant of human genetics and humanity to keep us alive and keep our redemption alive, a hope of redemption. And the same thing in the wars in Canaan, it completely changes how you see the Bible to me and how you see God. I think that's a great segue kind of into uh, one of the main main cores of uh, your fir- your first book, The Judgment of the Nephilim, when we talk about the, the pure bloodline, right? And we can take that, we start right in Genesis. We start right away in the beginning, you know, with Adam and Eve, and then that that fall down as we go through. And, and it, it always boggles my mind when we get to, sorry, and I'm jumping around here, but it boggles my mind when we jump around to um, Genesis 6. And, you know, everything we see, you know, Lamech with Cain, you know, uh, I'm sorry, I jumped around again. But when we go through all that and we see that in nine or eight or nine verses, all of a sudden we go from the, you know, the Nephilim happen, you know, the fallen angels come down, the Nephilim happen, and all of a sudden there needs to be a flood to wipe all this out. In that short a period of time, things got so bad that all that need to happen. But I think the keys, and you show this too, the clues to why we don't need to have all the, you know, generationally what happened in between there. You give us the keys and the clues in the book. Well, the Bible does, but you point them out. And I kind of think that's important that you kind of take us down that path to show why that bloodline and kind of a few good instances like uh, when we get further along with um, Judah and like Tamar like that. That was that story. It just blows me away when you think about it, because God had to use that and bend that whole situation in a way that just blows your mind just to keep the bloodline alive. Exactly. Exactly. And again, you know, that story, uh, we can get to that, you know, that's a very strange story because it's literally just thrown in the middle of the life of Joseph, right? Joseph's obviously we know what happened to him. He's sold into slavery. He goes into Egypt. That has nothing to do with him. But here we have this random story with this strange, you know, uh, kind of thing going on with Judah and his sons being killed on the spot. Right. And so again, it brings an understanding as to why that God isn't irrational. God is never irrational. God has a plan of redemption from the foundation of the earth to bring us back into his family. And so it's just another example of how understanding Genesis six really can enhances your witness and your faith in God. And when you go, when you talk about how it really starts, what I challenge the reader to do in Judgment of the Nephilim, my first book, is to view the events of Genesis from the angelic perspective, particularly from the perspective, the perspective of the fallen angels. So you go right back to Genesis 3.15, and that's what really starts it all, right? Adam and Eve have sinned, and now God is pronouncing their sentences and their punishments. And when he gets to the devil in verse 15, you have the, the what I call the ultimate prophecy, the proto-evangelum, the first prophecy of the Messiah, when God tells the devil in no uncertain terms that the seed of the woman is going to bruise or crush his head, that he's going to be conquered by a human child. And again, from the angelic perspective, that's a really radical announcement. It's like, no, I'm not going to come and get you. There's going to be a child one day, and he's going to destroy you. So one, it was probably shocking to the angelic realm but two it then sets the devil's sights on humanity that he has to either kill his child stop him from being born or corrupt humanity altogether so that the human messiah could never 
redeem humanity because we've all been corrupted and changed to something other than human. So that all that sets the stage for Genesis 6, for the fallen angels taking human women as wives. It sets the whole course of the really biblical history in motion. And one thing I think uh, was a big shock to them was is basically they, they were our elder brothers. You know, that, you right. know and yeah, Scripture tells sure. us you are your brother's keeper. Yeah. They were supposed to look after us. Right. And take care of us. But no, they got jealous just like the prodigal son parable. Exactly. And uh, seen how God favored us, and it just uh, just spurned jealousy. And so now he's saying, no, now the ones you were over and supposed to be looking over, no, they're going to overcome you and, and squash you. <laughs> right, right. And so it's like, you know, scroll of time, right? How do we see this pattern, right? Where the, the younger sibling, yes, you know, oh, even the in David. It, it, exactly, right? Yeah. And so... Uh, <laughs> And, we, we, and so we, we see that. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's, like you said, it's a repeating pattern. I loved how you pinned that all down in the book. You know, if you, if you look at Joseph, he was the younger yeah. and he was exalted. Esau was the older, but no, his younger yep. brother was exalted. It, exactly. David was the younger. No, he, God favors the younger just like us. You know, they were the first creation. We were the younger. So exactly. It, and we were repeating. given, you know, unique things, right? Like Joseph was given the coat of many colors. We were given marriage. We were made in God's image. So right off the bat, we had two things as as human beings that were distinct about us. That even though we don't have their power, right? We don't have the power of angels. We don't have their wisdom. We certainly don't have their lifespans. God gave us a blessing of two things that they didn't have. And that's what really, again, you know, what did the angels in Genesis 6 want? The fallen angels, they wanted wives, right? They wanted to take women for marriage. So something that we were given as humanity that they didn't have. Jumping back into to Genesis, you know, for a little further back again, um, I think that it's really a cool way of looking at it. And something that kind of blew my mind was how you brought up the the DNA of Adam, you know, the DNA of the father and how the sins of the father are passed down. Right. And when we look at that, how crucial that was for when Jesus came. And I think that that was something that blew my absolute mind when I read it, because it's right there in front of you. It's right there in the Bible. It's it shows you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, right. The concept in the King James of begetting, right. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, that there's a spiritual inheritance. And so this plays a huge factor in what's going on in Genesis in that we have we as humanity, we inherit our spiritual nature from our fathers. Right. That's a biblical concept. We read the New Testament and Adam all die. Right. We, it's cl very clear doctrine that we get our spiritual goes solely from the father. And so, of course, we and we accept that. Right. We, we all, you know, uh, the common belief in, in the church is that we have we're born with the sin nature that came from Adam. And so he's the father of corrupted humanity. And so when we look again at the genealogy leading to the Messiah, leading to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why it was so critical that Jesus was the seed of the woman. He's not the seed of a man, of, of a man. He's the seed of the woman, right? So he's born physically through Mary, but he's begotten of God the Father. So he's his spiritual nature is wholly divine. He has a physical human body, but he doesn't have the corrupted nature 
that every other human being in existence has had. And that's why, you know, we think about John 3.16 and we just, you know, we say from the time we're three years old, for God to love the world, he gave his only begotten son. But that term begotten, only begotten has a huge significance in terms of this whole war of the bloodlines, the genealogies, because it took, it took a Messiah who was wholly divine and human to redeem us and bring an end to that, to the sin nature that we inherit from Adam. And I think it's cool because it gives us that very first example right there in Genesis because it says Eve took of the fruit and ate it. And then we don't we don't know if Adam was standing right next to her, if he was down the road. We don't know. And then it says, and then she gave some to her husband who also ate, and then their eyes were open. So exactly. You, the, exactly. You, they don't know it's a sin until Adam commits the sin, the sins of the father. Right there. Absolutely. And, and, and even just the fact that it's clear, right? We know Eve sinned first. Yet mm-hmm. Adam is, is who we die in. And he right? takes it's, the it wasn't fall. Her, it, wasn't, it wasn't in Eve we die. It's in Adam we die. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, and, and Adam wasn't even deceived. But yet he bears the, the brunt of passing on the sin nature to all of humanity. That, that's just, that blew my mind. I'll be honest, that, it's, it's right there in front of you. And it just, it, it literally, you slapped me in the face through the book. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, I, that I'm was my jealous. goal. You know, it's, it's, about, <laughs> it's about pulling this stuff together, right? It's about pulling it really, that, that's the, the beauty of, you know, line upon line, precept upon precept, is that when we take our time, and I, I call Judgment of the Nephilim like a slow drive through the Old Testament, and really see how these details connect to a lot of other bigger concepts, it just opens it up. And even when we look at the Nephilim, and why they had to be exterminated is because it's the same concept, right? We are born with the corrupt spiritual nature from Adam. They had the spiritual nature of a fallen human and a depraved, a fallen angel. Their fathers, their, their fathers I believe that their evil, their spiritual nature was even more accelerated in evil. You know, they're outside the creation, but also because they, because they have the, the, the fallen angelic spirit in them and i love how you draw the the overline theme because then you see scripture from thirty thousand feet you know yeah. you have the you know i guess what you know timothy alberino he calls the the dragon slayer prophecy you know that the the, sure. the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and then first thing uh he tries to get at cain you know, because he fears that Abel is that prophesied son. And then it goes on down, then they start polluting the bloodline. And then, I mean, you just see, like, you know, you talked about earlier, just repeating themes. But then when they reconquered the Holy Land, that's why. Because he was protecting that divine seed where the Messiah was going to come. You know, once you see it from overhead looking down, you're like, okay, everything makes sense now. Uh but where things really start to get interesting, I love how when you dove into Lamech, and that's yeah, sure. something that I'd never really noticed before. And I think I first heard it, I didn't, from not reading your book, but from your uh, Thursday uh, theology. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, it's amazing because, you know, six is the number of man, you know, and it's a number short of perfection. Well, Lamech, you know, had six full verses. And this is a genealogy. Yeah. You know, this is a this begot that. But no, out of nowhere, this guy, he gets six full verses in a genealogy. So uh, it's, it's got to be important to have some significance. 
Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that's what I call a special reference, right? When you see out of nowhere, yeah. he is his generation and he's not even in the godly lineage, right? So, excuse me. So what does that mean? The Bible to me is, is kind of screaming. Something is significant historically is happening in this generation. So you got to pay attention to what's happening. And so what I point out uh, in judgment of the Nephilim is I, you know, I call this generation, the first family of the Nephilim, because you see Lamech, um, who of course, again, is from the descendant of Cain. He's outside of the godly line. He's not even living in Eden. And he's, he's it, what we, the first thing we see is that he's, he's the first polygamist yeah. on record, right? He breaks the marital covenant of one man, one woman, he takes two wives. And it's the same Hebrew verb that for take, he takes two wives, right? The, the angels in Genesis six took wives unto them, which, which all they chose. So, we see already some parallels and then he's bragging about killing someone, you know, so he's a murderer. So this guy is boasting and then mocks God, right? Cause God put the protection on Cain and promised if anyone tried to seek revenge on Cain for killing his brother, God would avenge them. And he says, well, it'll be 70 times seven. I'll be avenged if anyone, basically if anyone messes with me. And so, but in terms of the, the, the fallen angels and the Nephilim, what we also see there is we see a description of all three of his sons. So that's also standing out. J-Ball, Jubal, Tubal Cain. And you have here what I believe is essentially this was the family where the fallen angels came to offer divine knowledge, forbidden knowledge in exchange for a woman's hand in marriage. And you look at that the description in those six verses, J-Ball, they're all inventors. They're all are creating technologies, you know, for the ancient world. J-Ball, the father of animal husbandry tent making jubal was the inventor of music i mean instruments the actual inventor of music is jubal and then you have tubal cain who it says is the father of blacksmithing blacksmithing artificing making weapons tools so this is one family one set of brothers all this you know the foundation of technology in the, in the ancient world came from just one generation of three brothers and uh then you get well a, they have a, the a, trade What's that? What do they have the trade? That's the next thing you get. The, <laughs> the, next, the next peculiar reference, the first reference to a sister in a genealogy. And it says, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. And so what I show is that this sister, Nama, she was the bartering. She was the bargaining chip. They offered her hand in marriage in exchange for all this intellect, all this technology, all this knowledge. And, and not only, um, and then even when you look at her name, Nama in Hebrew means beautiful. You know, the sons of God saw that the women, the sons, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, right? They saw that they were beautiful and she, her name means beautiful. And, you know, I love to dig into the ancient sources from the church fathers to 1800s, 1700s, when Christians accepted the supernatural aspects of the Bible just as you accept Genesis 1-1 and John 3-16. And you find other sources that concur, that say that this woman was the, the first bride of the sons of God, the Benaiha Elohim, and the first mother of a Nephilim giant. I do love that, where you pull in like Tertullian and Justin Martyr and uh, Josephus and so many of these other, and it's those things, once again, where, yes, they're not in the Bible, but it's it's... It's history. And you look at what is it? Tertullian was only in like the second or third century after Jesus. I mean, it was, it was pretty this is pretty fresh. You know, he's, he's he's right there. And so 
they have their hands on the on the the pulse on the situation. They know what's going on, so it's a good historical reference. And I love that you that you pull that kind of stuff in as well. But I I really want you to go into that story a little bit of Tamar. I think that that's something that blew my mind a little bit. I'd, I'd like you to break that one down for us a little bit. Yeah, sure. So again, you know, you're, you're skipping ahead now, of course. To... I know. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's okay. No, no, no. It's okay. No, no. It's no problem at all. I'm just sitting just the stage. Uh, usually the backing listeners. it up. I, I was gonna. Yeah, listen, I was we'll, gonna say he's setting himself we'll, up to back we'll, it up. I am, I'm gonna back it up to the flood in a little while. <laughs> yeah. No. No. It's no problem at all. So, so right now we're, we're as we get to the account of Joseph, we get this account of Judah, uh, essentially taking a. Uh, having sons with a Canaanite woman. And so what we see here is, again, that Judah, of course, was the prophesied son who's through his lineage, the Messiah was going to come. So once again, what what I show, you know, uh, in in my first book is that Canaan was the patriarch, the father of the post-Diluvian giants. So the Canaanites, this is why the Canaanites were the target in the book of Joshua. So now we get to the, you know, the account of, but, in the, but back in the Genesis account, he takes a Canaanite wife. So this again is bringing the potential of the Nephilim DNA, the fallen angelic Nephilim DNA to enter the messianic bloodline. And what do we see? He wants to have his son, his sons get married. We of course, starting with the oldest. And what do we see there? God kills his son. He says he's wicked in God, he's evil in God's sight, and God just strikes him dead personally, which again is something we see over and over again. Whenever it comes to the Nephilim, God will come down from heaven and personally intervene and fight and kill to protect the Messianic bloodline and protect humanity. So then he has his second son, Onan, of course, who uh, he tries to have, you know, get married and have a child, and he, there's an account of him spilling his seed, and he's he's been killed. And so we see God does the same thing. And ultimately what happens is he hides his third son and says, oh, you know, we're not going to marry Tamar. Tamar, who is, of course, is, uh, you know, was set to be the bride to these sons and kind of sends the third son away. So we're not going to do this. Because he's, he's starting to realize that God is not pleased with his sons marrying and trying to have a child with Tamar. And so what happens is you have this account of Tamar uh, dressing herself up as a lady of the night, a harlot, and essentially uh, tricking Judah into impregnating her. And then she, and she takes his signet as a sign, as a pledge of, of payment, as a down payment, a deposit on his payment for her. And of course, later on, it's found out that she's pregnant. Judah says, oh, she's pregnant. And of course, he, he's not realizing he's the dad, says, you know, she should be burnt with fire, and she, lo and behold, has his signet to prove that he's actually the father. And it's this really kind of like reality television account in, in the Bible in Genesis. And it's like, what is going on here? You have sons just being struck dead. This crazy thing where she's pretending to be, she's hiding, pretending to be a prostitute, and he falls for it. And he, of course, he admits that he's wrong. He acknowledges it. But what it did Again, from the 30,000-foot view, you see God is protecting this lineage of Judah. He's saying that he will kill a Canaanite son on the spot, a half Canaanite son, on the spot to make sure that the lineage continues, so that Judah continued the lineage um, through Tamar. So it's really, again, one of these accounts in Scripture, kind of like Lamech taking two wives. And his son's like, 
what's the real relevance of this? Why does it matter that we get, why did they throw these six verses in here about this one guy who took two wives and had some sons who invented things? Well, it's, it's really a huge part of the big picture of the battle of these bloodlines. And we see here, God clearly directly intervening to make sure that that lineage of Judah continued without any Nephilim genetic contamination. You see what he did? He backed it up for me. That yeah. was pretty good. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> and don't worry, you don't have to be embarrassed. You can say copulate or something like that on the episode. You have to be embarrassed to, to talk about right. uh, <laughs> about Judah. Yeah. All right, good, good, good to know. <laughs> We've even sang Let's Copulate. Uh, to the Marvin Gaye. <laughs> to the Marvin Gaye. Yeah, it's, it's happened. Yeah. While well, you sang. Yeah, I sang. <laughs> you sang. <laughs> but I guess, I guess I, uh, I'm really bad with chronology. I apologize. I'm yeah. making you jump no, it's around. Right. It's the things Wherever that you hit want to me. Go. I'm ready. That hit me in this book, uh, the, the, the stuff that you um, kind of pull out for us here. But I guess I, we, could, we could start, I guess, a little bit with going into, you know, why the flood but at the same time, I think it's really important to talk about how God described Noah and and the terminology yeah. he used. And and you kind of relate that back to the sacrificial lambs that the uh, Israelites yeah, would use. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, a lot of times when you think about Genesis 6 and the flood, and even in churches, they'll say, you know, they'll say the earth was filled with wickedness. The earth is filled with violence, right? All it's, Which is factual. That's exactly what the scripture states. And God sent the flood. The world was just really wicked, but there's something else going on there. When you look, especially in verses 9, 10, and 11 in Genesis chapter 6, three times you see the word corrupt. All the all flesh had corrupted itself before God. There was something happening in human flesh that was destroying it. That word sahat in Hebrew for corrupt or corrupted is used as destroyed later on in Scripture. So something was happening to human flesh and that's what led to the wickedness. That's what led to the evil. That's what led God to say, now I'm going to send a flood. And it was, again, this genetic contamination from the fallen angels fathering the Nephilim and who were overrunning the human population. And we get further confirmation of this when we see the introduction of Noah. Because, of course, it says Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And like you referenced before, that term for perfect, tamim in Hebrew, is referring to a physical perfection. The same thing that when you get to Exodus and the sacrificial lamb for the Passover, that it has to be a lamb without blemish. That's tamim, the same term. So it's not referring to his morality. It's referring to that he was perfect, perfectly human. And it even says in his generation. So his lineage had not been touched by the Nephilim fallen angelic DNA. And of course, you combine that with the fact that he was a faithful believer which is why God chose him to be the builder of the ark and to reboot the human race after the flood. Yeah, that's just awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry. It just, that's just awesome. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, God is good. Uh, one thing I was wanting to, to ask you about, in your opinion, uh, there's lots of people out, you know, that you know, are Bible-reading Christians, but they totally don't believe there was any nephilim after the flood and i've heard all kinds of you know theories and stuff you know and like one recurring one i keep hearing is you know well if god brought the flood to uh wipe away the nephilim if nephilim pop up after the flood you know you're basically implying that god failed you know and then i've heard you know there's no actual uh references 
to, to height. There's just, you know, uh, metaphors and, you know, uh, hyperbole. You know, yeah, we were like grasshoppers or tall as cedars. Well, that's just, that's just exaggeration. There's no real physical numbers. And then when you actually do give a physical number, like in Goliath's instance, oh, well, he was, you know, wasn't even seven foot tall. You're talking about people that are five five, so that shows you that they were just being exaggerative, you know. And the whole numbers thing, that was just, they were scared. They made up this big story just to scare everybody, and even God and Moses rebuked them for it afterward. You know, uh, what's your standpoint, or what would you say to the naysayers, I guess? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's several things, right? So you have one you know, we can just go right to numbers, right? So the Bible calls them Nephilim. The term in Numbers 13, 33 is Nephilim. So we know that the same beings who were in Genesis 6, verse 4, show up again, right? That's, that's just the, the, the literal testimony of Scripture, is that the Nephilim were back again. And then what I show is, if you think about this, right, the sons of Anak, Ahimon, Seshai, Talmai, the three giants that the Israelites, the 12 spies saw, right, scouting out the promised land for Joshua. Remember the chronology of what's happening here. This scouting mission is taking place probably two weeks after the exodus out of Egypt, right? So the Israelites saw with their own eyes, God performed 10 plagues, water turned into blood, locusts, flies, frogs, every firstborn killed while they're saved in their homes, right? Everything God said he's going to do. And then, of course, the ultimate, the parting of the Red Sea, destroying the most powerful army on the planet at that time, in existence ever, probably up until that point. And so they saw all this with, with their own eyes. And also, God, for the past two weeks, has been leading them, right, in a pillar of smoke, a pillar, pillar of fire, and a pillar of a cloud, right? So God is physically manifesting in front of them for two weeks, after doing all these miracles and then all it takes is seeing three guys and the 10 of the spies come back and say, there's no way we can do this. Yeah. These guys are going to kill us. We can't do this. God cannot bring us into this land. Now, what are the odds? First of all, you think about this too. Who's going to be picked to be spies, right? The best guys, right? That's they, they didn't just pick 12 random people. They wanted some of the most bravest, courageous people from each tribe to represent the spy team. And then they see three people, three normal sized guys after everything, after they saw a whole army destroyed by God in a moment in the Red Sea and say, no, there's no way God can deliver us against these guys. No way God can beat these three guys. I would say that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, <laughs> I go with a big cornbread fed. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, what would you think? I mean, any rational person say oh this is nothing all they got is three guards at the door we're, we're good right god has got god we just saw god wipe out thousands of people in the egyptian army so that's one thing um also even when we talk about the measurements and the height yeah that's true I, I i would say you know amos chapter two where god is saying that king og and king sihon the two amorite kings who he fought against and he defeated, he, God says their height was as the height of the cedar. So I can't imagine why God would say that about any enemy of his. And it's just an exaggeration or it's just a metaphor. It doesn't mean that, but, but even going further into that, when we see in numbers two the introduction of King Og, we're told his bed is about 13 feet long and it was being kept 
as like a museum item, you know, in the capital of the, the Ammonite kingdom. So again, we see a clear, the Bible, when it comes to the Nephilim, we're getting specific measurements. The Bible is telling us things to let us know that these are not normal sized people, right? Even, well, he could have had a lot of concubines too. What's that? He could have had a lot of concubines. <laughs> that big bit. Line them up uh, in bed to copulate. Yeah. <laughs> I had to. You lined that up for me. I had to hit it out. <laughs> it's all good. I'm with you. I got uh, and, uh, I got an idea. I got something I want to bounce off you and see what yeah, you think. Yeah, sure, sure. Because it's something I've been thinking about a little bit is, is if we say that the angels, you know, it always talks about how they left their first estate when the fallen yep. angels came down, right? Yeah. So these angels had that ability to change into a human being, but still had, uh, I would imagine still had some kind of divinity, like as far as they were able to still have, uh, for lack of a better word, powers, you know, you think about the, the fact that maybe they had the ability to, to, they obviously had wisdom, but maybe they still had some of their angelic powers. My thing is, if you look into Daniel and we look at the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Grecia, we're still seeing this after the flood, that there's still principalities from Deuteronomy, right, that we talked about that are evil. And are these principalities, I mean, if they're angels, you know, it, it talks about in the Bible that, you know, be uh, always be mindful because you never know when you could entertain angels. So angels can take on a human form anytime. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and often do. Sleep. So why would these how could these principalities not do the exact same thing and come down and redo exactly what happened before? Granted, I know. It doesn't say exactly in the Bible that that happened, but if it yeah. happened once and they're still here, those are, obviously this is a different group. They're not down in the abyss and they're not, you know, they haven't yeah, been yeah. cast down. But these are the principalities in Deuteronomy that kind of have repeated the cycle. They've gone through and said, you know what? No, I want the praise of these people. I don't, I want, you know, that the, the angel had to fight the prince of Persia and said that later he was going to have to fight the prince of Grecia. That's right. How can these how can these these same principalities that are angelic beings potentially not still have that ability to be a human? And I know, once again, I have to say this. I always have to preface this. I know that's not does not say that verbatim in the Bible. But if you connect those pieces and it says we could entertain angels without knowing it, they can definitely at least appear human. I, I don't know. I just I find that interesting. Well, just I as think a, a second incursion yeah. had to have happened. I mean, that's the only logical explanation, you know, and it's, it's like that story of being Stephen was talking about. If a tree falls down in the woods and nobody's there, it still makes a sound. You just don't hear it. So just because <laughs> yeah. we don't get it recorded in our scriptures doesn't yeah. mean it didn't happen. I mean, obviously we see the the after effects. The Raphaim yeah. and the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I take a different tact on that, and that's a bit highly debated thing. You know, I've had great discussions. You know, uh, L.A. Marzulli, for example, he has a huge, big time mm -hmm. second incursion theory. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I think what I look at is I think there's a chapter in scripture that talks about Genesis 6 that is probably the most underrated, slept on chapter in the Bible. And that's Ezekiel chapter 31. And so I kind of compare that chapter to Isaiah 14 that talks about Lucifer, how it thou fallen. And even though it's addressed to the king of Babylon, we associate it with the devil. Ezekiel 28, when it says the, the, the prince of Tyrus, thou has been in Eden, the garden of God. So he's not talking to about a human prince. It's talking, I believe, to the devil and talking about his history before he turned evil. 
I think Ezekiel 31 is one of those chapters. And I believe it's actually identifying the angel who led the Genesis 6 rebellion. That's not the devil. That it's an angel called in the scriptures is called the Assyrian. And that he was the leader of the Genesis 6 rebels who took human women as wives. And it's kind of describing the whole pre-flood kingdom he had. And it compares him to this tree, very similar to Nebuchadnezzar was compared to a tree in Daniel chapter 4. The, the, sim, the symbolism is very similar. And, and just like Ezekiel 28, it references him being in the Garden of Eden. And in fact, that chapter of the Bible mentions the Garden of Eden more than any other individual chapter in Scripture. And the interesting thing is when he, when he talks about God judging him, this, the Assyrian, it says that in the days that God judged him, brought him down to uh, the nether parts of the earth, to the Tehom, to the abyss, right? It says he was brought, to, it says the day, in the day he brought him down, the, the floodwaters abated. So it's making a direct reference to the flood. And so I believe what happened was this describing the destruction of his kingdom by the floodwaters and then him being dragged down with all the fallen angels, essentially in a whirlpool down to the abyss. And it referenced, I think, three times the abyss, the nether parts of the earth. And it also says that God did this to the purpose that no one would ever try this again. It says that none of the trees would ever exalt themselves again. And it calls them the trees of Eden, I believe is the metaphoric language for the angels in Genesis 6 in that chapter and says that they, none of them would ever try this again. And I think the flood by taking those angels out of the game, you know, and this is what I also say to people who question the Genesis 6 account. The fact of the matter is, if you believe the Bible, you know, you know, the devil has never been to hell. He's not in hell. You know, we see in Job, he's going to heaven still. Revelation says he's the accuser of the brethren before the throne of God. So he still has access to heaven. He's on earth. He's going wherever he wants to go, essentially. But these angels were taken to hell immediately, locked up in chains out. So punished before Satan was punished. And so I think that was, there was a deterrent factor of God saying, if you ever try this again, you're out. You're out of the heavenly realm, the earthly realm, you go directly to hell. You know, do not pass go, do not collect $200. You're out of the game. And so that's and so that's kind of what I see why I lean more toward there not being a second incursion. Um, because I believe just because it's not mentioned explicitly doesn't mean it didn't happen, right? It could have happened. Um, but I think that chapter is God explaining what was going on when why he also punished the angels and how he punished the angels. And I even connected, I think the ultimate proof, um, if you're gonna really uh, dig into the Bible right now. What I connected to is I actually connected all the way back to all the way forward to Revelation and Revelation chapter nine, because I believe at the fifth trumpet, when the abyss is opened, you know, I believe that's those beings that are called locusts that emerge from the abyss are the fallen angels of Genesis six. Because first of all, they're the only beings in the Bible who are locked in the abyss, who, who are told are even in the abyss. And so they're released, and one, you see the smoke that blacks out the sun. It says they're under chains of darkness. I believe that's the smoke. That's the chains of under darkness. It's that smoke. And they torment the unbelieving world 
for five months, 150 days on the Hebrew calendar. Again, going back to Ezekiel 31, God said, in the day that I brought you down to the abyss, the floodwaters abated. And what I show is in Genesis 8, when you look at the chronology of the flood, when did the floodwaters abate? After 150 days. So these angels were tormented by the floodwaters for 150 days, then dragged to the abyss and locked for millennia. And when they're finally released from the same abyss, they now torment the rebels against God for 150 days. Yeah, in that 150 days, too, uh, I liked, I, I can't remember where I read it. It was in a book, but it said that uh, that's actually uh, the gestation period for, like, domesticated, like, farm animals and stuff. Oh, wow. wow. And it talks about, you know, where the Israelites, you know, were sheep herders and farmers and stuff, that, yeah. that they caught that. And that's why when Jesus was talking about, you know, you'll see this, you'll see that. Well, no, this is the beginning of the birth pangs. Wow. It went back to that 150-day gestation yeah, yeah, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a stuff. farm, and I can attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. That's good stuff. I, I did not know that. That's great stuff. I just, it, it's, it's uh, all the pieces that fit together. It's just a puzzle. And the thing is that we'll never be able to put that last little piece in until we actually get to heaven. Because, and that's all we can do is speculate to some degree. But I love this. I love having the conversations because, I, you know, we're all going to have difference of opinion. And we all have scripture to back up our our interpretation of scripture to back up what we believe. But in the end, it's it's that we can have these conversations that help strengthen our faith because we sit there and it forces us to dig in more and more and more and learn more and more and more. And I think that's it's just I love it. That's all I can say. Amen. I love it. Amen. And it's the relationship. Right. Right. So God has given us a book that reveals himself to us. And so the time we spend looking into these things, trying to figure out the mysteries and God tells us, right? It's this, this the glory of God to conceal a thing. God is hiding mysteries in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. Not the gospel. The gospel is clear. It's the, you know, it's easy to understand, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, right? For the remission of sins. So, but there are mysteries in there. And so, we, so the more we, the more we try to, figure it out, to dig into scripture, to really try to unravel these things, it's going to strengthen our faith. It's going to give us wisdom, but also it's bringing us closer to God. And that's, that's to me is the, the, the greatest reward once we understand, once we're a believer and we're already saved is that it builds that relationship. And like, I, I, I'm grateful and thankful for you know, I, I get contacted by lots of people. I mentioned, you know, I, I got some people criticizing me. It's all good. Yeah. But I do get a lot of, you know, nice correspondence. And, and, and to hear people who say, I wasn't even a believer. Or I grew up going to church and I gave up going to church and someone recommended your book. And, you know, my biggest issue with God was Noah's Ark and the flood. And now I understand it. Or I never understood. I could not rationalize a loving God killing, slaughtering children. But now I understand, and it's actually even bringing people back to the Christian faith, and that's that's what it's all about. So, you know, right. you know what that tells me, and that and that's one of those things that we all we all say. But you know what that tells me is that telling me that you're doing exactly what God wants you to do, and I think that we all need to aspire to that. We all need to try to find that niche that God wants us to do. And if you're following what He says, and if you're following what what His plan is for you, you're going to make that difference too. But you've already found that, and I think that. 
you know what? There's got to be a third book is what I think. <laughs> we got to go to the next. You're, you're an excellent writer. You put the information there and you had, as, as Justin loves to say, you had the nuggets. The nuggets were there. The nuggets were there and we loved it. And, and that's what I think. Yeah, yeah. When you have a gift, you need to share that gift with the world. It's, it's the, you know, we, it always talks in the Bible. Well, it talks in the Bible about how God has given you spiritual gifts. And, and, you know, what my gift is, is not what your gift is. It's not what Ben's gift is. It's not what Justin's gift is. But Amen. when you find your gift that he's given you, you use that to the fullest extent and you reach out and you get as many people. And I've said this a million times, but our whole focus here on earth is to empty out hell and populate heaven. And Amen. if you can do that through your writing, through you, you being able to reach people on this platform, you're doing exactly what he's telling you to do. And that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Praise the Lord. And, and, and you don't be wrong. I, 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 I have lots of projects on the way, so I'm, I'm definitely not done writing by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, but right now, uh, I'm really kind of focusing on, uh, on the youth and on kids. Mm -hmm. So I, I, um, I was a youth leader at my church before I used to, you know, when I lived in New York uh, for ten years, and so. Right now, I'm putting together. I also do documentaries, so you know, I produce two documentaries. There's a documentary on both books, mm -hmm. uh, Judgment of the Nephilim, Secrets of the Pre Flood World, and the Final Nephilim Battle for Heaven and Earth. And they're kind of like the high level overviews of each book. And, um, and also, I always forget to mention too, the Final Nephilim also has video free video commentary in the book, yeah. Uh, you know, there's QR codes, the free bonus video commentary I give, you know, uh just kind of extra commentary and things that were going on when I was writing things that, you know, whatever kind of came to mind about a particular chapter, I, I made a little video on it, but there's one bonus uh, commentary in the book that I actually don't write about in the book. I just do a video on it and it's about the, the books and movies and TV shows and pop culture right now. They're all talking about the Nephilim and fallen angels and there's lots of them lots and lots yes. and lots of them but they're but they're making the nephilim the heroes or the saviors they're making the fallen angels who fall in love with human women they're just you know like they're just you know uh, they're, they're they're beautiful beings and it's just basically mean god preventing two people who love each other from having a relationship and so it's all these things that are just twisting everything in a really crazy way i mean even some of the titles right there's a book one book called daughter of perdition it's about a woman, a teenage girl who learns she's a Nephilim, but she, but she's also like the savior of humanity. And so, so I'm, I'm putting together a documentary that's expanding on that video, that, that commentary, that's a full fledged, like, you know, 90 minute expose on all these things to really um, kind of wake up again, trying to wake up really the church that not only is this important to know for our own knowledge, but the world is taking this stuff and force feeding it on kids and teenagers right now you remember when it all started don't you like 1993 or 94 city of angels city Nicholas of angels Cage. yeah there you go oh there that you poor go. pitiful angel he just loved that woman and that's and right god took her away i think uh, yep. i think that this goes way i mean this goes back when you talk about to the, you think the fallen angels would have you know we're giving you this technology things god's withholding from you we're giving That's you right. look at we're the saviors. Look at the you know you look at the Assyrian cultures and 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 all those cultures where you have the 
the um, the the Apkalu, and then you go further into the Egypt with the Anunnaki and all these ones that are their saviors, Prometheus their gods. With yeah. Prometheus go. with fire, you know, bringing that to humans. Gods were withholding this from you. So this stuff has been going. This is, you know, what they say: nothing's new is under the sun, right? Exactly. It's all. First of all, all those accounts you brought up. It's all the same account. It's yeah. all going back to yeah. the days of Noah. Mm-hmm. It's just there are individual cultural spin on it, but it's, yeah, but it's repeating, right? It's repeating. There's nothing new under the sun. And what I love about that verse, it specifically says in Ecclesiastes 1, 9, and 10 that the thing that hath been is that which shall be. So God is telling you clearly, listen, go back to the beginning of the Bible and you're going to understand Revelation, right? That's if you really want to understand Revelation, Go to the earliest events in the scripture because it's all happened before, and I'm just repeating everything. Well, you mentioned time. You know, once was, will be again. You know, a lot of, you know, already but not yet. I love in the final Nephilim when you dive into uh, time and quantum physics with God and prophetic events, the whole Alpha, the Omega, and the meaning of the the tetragram. Could you touch on that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of my mind-blowing moments of that book, and it was like right (laughs) at the first of the book. I was like, oh, this is going to be so good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. So, yeah, so in in the first chapter of the final Nephilim, um, the chapter is called The Beginning is the End, right? And so what I wanted to do is really get into this, because now we're talking about prophecy, right, and revelation, and the thing that's unique about Revelation is that it's the only book in the Bible that's written outside of time. John is called up to heaven in the spiritual realm. He's told, write these things down. So he's seeing past, present, and future all in front of him at once in the heavenly realm. And so I wanted to explain that God expresses his power and his he being the most high, El El Young. In Isaiah 46, he says he bases it on prophecy. He says, what makes him God? He says, I'm God and there's no one else declaring the end from the beginning. So it's all, God says, if you, he basically is saying, I'm banking my name on the fact that I'm the only one who can tell prophecy. And so when you think about time, again, like I said in the first book, I said, think about things from the angelic or fallen angelic perspective. Now it's like, think about prophecy and time from God's perspective, because God is outside of time. And so I brought up quantum physics because I think it's so interesting that you have this like this now quantum physics is really digging into this idea of I talk about quantum superposition, where an electron or you know a subatomic particle can exist in two states at once. It can be spinning up, an electron can spin up and spin down at the same time. This is what scientists say can happen, and what I try to show is that. That is science just figuring out a little bit about the spiritual realm, because that's how God expresses himself constantly. Jesus says, I am my father or one. Jesus standing on earth at his first coming on earth. God, the father's in heaven. He says, we're one, right? The Trinity says there are three. God, the father, the the son, the spirit, and the father, and these three are one. How does God exist as three separate beings that are one at the same time? You mentioned the Alpha and Omega. Jesus says he's beginning and ending. And again, also that, you know, at the same time. So so Jesus exists in a state of superposition all the time. He's fully God and fully man at the same time, right? So so to me, it's like science is just starting to catch up to the Bible. I mean, you talk about the Tetragrammaton, Yodhe Vadhe, that 
that even that name, I am that I am like, it's like, you know, I, I, I quote a Jewish source that talks about how this is even that name is a reflection of quantum superposition because it's God expressing that he is the all existent one. He is past, present and future at the same time. And so uh, I just wanted to really set the table again that when we're thinking about prophecy, we have to think about it from the divine perspective and understand that God's power is so vast because he is he sits outside of all of this and he sits in it and outside of it all at the same time yeah i'm just looking at like even like on a like a subatomic level you know all these you know basically i compare it to like megapixels you remember the nintendo back in the day you're playing mario brothers you got all these little blocks well you know by itself it's just one little block but when you put them all together, it makes a shape. You know, the same thing is like God. Those blocks, those megapixels are everywhere. And you can't exactly. you can't see that megapixel until you focus on it. And when you focus on it, it ain't that that megapixel is there. It's, it's everywhere and drawing to that one spot just so you can see it. You know, it's, it's basically like exactly. omnipresent, you know, and, that, and that's right. God. Which again is quantum physics right that you can that when you have when you observe that electron in superposition it collapses to only doing one thing right so that's exact so again it's like science is really converging with the spirit realm with the bible and you know um and, and what i talk about also is that prophecies themselves are connected through time you have the types and shadows and the foreshadows we already talked about joseph clearly a type of jesus moses a foreshadow right that god and God uses these to connect events and prophetic events through time, right? It's similar to quantum entanglement, that things that, that particles can actually be connected through time. And w- what happens with one affects the other. I believe prophecy works in the same way and repeats. And I call it almost like, I say like, you know, we have to think of time to God not being linear, but like a scroll where events keep repeating and you look at a scroll, the beginning of the scroll is the end of the scroll, the end is the beginning. So that's kind of how I break down time in uh, chapter one. All right. So one other thing I really, I really find interesting because it, it made me think of things in a different way that I have uh, haven't. And I know, like I said, we're jumping around a little bit here, but when we look at most people who talk about the fallen angels, you see this Mount Hermon narrative, right? 99% of people in this space use the Mount Hermon narrative is that this is where the fallen angels descended. But when you bring up and we're looking at it strictly, strictly from the, um, the biblical perspective, you know, you have a little bit different view and I thought it was really interesting and it, it made me cause I, you know, you hear all these people talk about the Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon. I was sitting there going, yep, it's Mount Hermon. And then all of a sudden you made me question things and I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. I thought, I thought they had it figured out. So how dare you, Ryan? I know you're messing with me, man. It's not cool. No, but I think, I think what you said, and it, it is really interesting because, um, you have a little bit of a different, uh, I guess, landing point uh when we talk about the jordan river i'd like you to kind yeah, of yeah elaborate for sure there. for sure so yeah so i really de- i do diverge from the common like you said probably 99 percent of books and commentaries videos on this topic will say that the fallen angels in genesis 6 came to earth landed on earth at 
Mount Hermon. But for me, my, I don't see that in Genesis. I don't see Mount Hermon mentioned in connection with Genesis 6. I don't see much happening with Mount Hermon really much in scripture. But what I do see in terms of what could be a landing spot for the fallen angels, I think actually where there's a supernatural portal between heaven and earth is at the Jordan River. And so what I point out is, one, the Jordan River, I call it the Area 51 of the Bible because there are so many supernatural events that happen at the Jordan River. Just a couple of examples, right? You have uh, Naaman, right? The, the Syrian military leader who has leprosy and Elisha, the prophet, ha tells him to be healed. How? By dipping himself in the Jordan River seven times. He comes out and he's fully healed and a believer. You have uh, Elijah being uh, supernaturally fed at the Brook Cherith, which is a brook of the Jordan River. Ravens, carnivorous birds deliver food to him, meat to him at the Jordan River when he's on the run from Jezebel. Elijah then later on is, I say raptured, you know, taken up to heaven by the chariots of fire. Uh, where did that take place? At the Jordan River. Heaven opens up and he's taken to heaven at the Jordan River. Uh, Jesus. Jacob has the vision of the ladder um, at Bethel, due west of the Jordan River. He sees angels ascending and descending at the Jordan River. So again, you see time after time, we see supernatural events taking place at this river. In the book of Joshua, the Jordan River is parted just like the Red Sea. And God, think about, think about the Exodus path, right? The geography of the Exodus. God made the Israelites basically march around almost half the border of the entire country to specifically enter the promised land at the Jordan River. They could have come through the south near Gaza or Ashkelon, but instead they went around the whole southern border to the eastern side of the country to cross at the Jordan River, of course, where God supernaturally parts it. So, and then the, the I think the ultimate event, I believe that shows this supernatural portal is the baptism of Jesus Christ. And one thing I also talk about too is the etymology of Jordan, right? That Yardin means the place of their descent. That origin back in the, the third, third century quotes it as being the place of their descent. And what do we see at the baptism of Jesus Christ, right? One, Jesus traveled pretty far to go to the Jordan River to meet John the Baptist to be baptized there. And when he's baptized, of course, what happens? The heaven opens. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove onto the, onto the Messiah. And God speaks from heaven, of course, and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So we see the heavenly realm directly, not just opening, the portal opening, but also the Holy Spirit actually coming out of heaven into the earthly realm and God speaking audibly from heaven. So again, I believe it's a place, you know, the, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And so again, I believe that was the location of the uh, sons of God making their descent into the human realm uh, at the Jordan River. And there goes another 10,000 hours for me. And, <laughs> gosh. I, 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 my head hurts. Which one thing I thought of, and maybe you've looked into this, but I know you, you had uh, speculated that everything started with uh, Lamech. Yeah. Is there any indication of the region where Lamech was settled? 
because that that would tie everything together with a pretty red it, bow. It, de it definitely would. And um, is he still a nod? I, I, I mean, I really. Right, right, yeah. I mean, that's where Kane got it started and then built his own city. But it's very. I mean, I actually I looked into seeing where that was, but I couldn't find enough to say that it was in proximity to the Jordan River. I right? just kind of so popped I, in my head. I was like, No, it's a great. No, it's it's a great point, and and um. I couldn't find that, but could it be the case? I think definitely could be the case, but I, I just personally didn't find the evidence to say, yeah, there's something that I can find that definitely geographically would, would situate them near the Jordan River. I also show, though, um, that throughout the Bible, though, that angels manifest near rivers, not even just the Jordan River, frequently. Oh, right? yeah. So, And even in, you know, you have uh, the book of Daniel. And the, yeah, there are angels at rivers constantly. So River Kibar, the Tigris, in, in in Revelation, you have four angels bound at the river Euphrates. So there's definitely just rivers alone. There's this connection. And even if you think about mythology, right? The passage to the underworld, the river Styx. Yep. Right? So there's this whole idea of a portal between the divine realm and the human realm connected to rivers. Well, if you look at history, too, and I just kind of jumping back to the Lamech thing you were talking about was – when you look through history, everybody always settles near water. You need water to survive anyway. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have a, if, for example, if you're a nomadic herder, as, um, as it Jubal was, right? And, and you, need, you need water you need for your water. animals, you're going to be near a, a, a source of water somewhere. Um, Absolutely. So every city and every, every you know, main uh, city, I guess throughout biblical, I mean, there, there has to be a source of water. There has to be something. So it only makes sense that he would have settled around some body of water, whether or not it was the Jordan, most likely a river ran through it. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah and and, and even you think about the, uh, <laughs> the garden of Eden, right? So about the four rivers that come out of the mm -hmm. garden, right? So again, you see there's this significance. And then if you really, Again, going back to Ezekiel 31, which I believe is a direct description of the Genesis 6 fallen angels, they talk about rivers in that chapter constantly. That there, it says the rivers made him great. So again, it's this proximity to rivers and fallen angels. Um, so, so do we see it explicitly that Lamech lived the Jordan River? No, but I think the evidence of where this could have happened really points more to the Jordan River than Mount Hermon in the Bible. That, that was that was one what that that you dropped on me there that kind of hit me like a brick wall because I <laughs> I was just I was just anticipating another oh yep from Mount Hermon I was just anticipating it and it never came yeah so yeah. I really no I love it I like oh, that yeah. you that you uh, really went on um, purely on scripture and didn't let any of those uh, apocryphal books sway you in what you when what you read and what you saw because I do believe and. I'm as guilty as anybody else that I've let them sway me in a lot of, in a lot of things that I've thought about. Um, but I, I just, it's made me think and it's really opened my mind to take on uh, a truly biblical um, view on these things and, and try to limit the resources I take from outside there to the best of my ability. Um, even though I do find a lot of that historical stuff really interesting, I just, you don't know if it's true, but you do know the Bible's true. 
Amen. And again, I, you listen, I, you know, I own the book of, Enoch. I, I own all the apocryphal books. So I'm not, I'm not taking the position that, you know, you should not read them. You cannot, you know, they're, they're uh, anathema or something to the church or anything like that. But at the same time, we better really make sure we've gone through the Bible on a certain point or a history mm-hmm. or whatever it is we were looking up before we take what an apocryphal book says. We want to, you know, that's the thing I would say is that, you know, it, it, it's imperative that we search out the Bible in detail before we just take the conclusion of a book that's not the Bible. Unless you're uh, the, the church of Ethiopia, then you just believe it. But yeah, uh, the yeah. Christian church and, of know, Ethiopia still has the apocrypha. In they it, do. So, Listen, in they Bible. do. They do. And, 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 and I've been, a lot of my research has been into um, the church in Africa. I've, I've been doing a lot of research on that in the past few months. And so, I will eventually get to their, I, I don't know from a manuscript st- standpoint, how different their Enoch is from what we have in America. I don't know yet, but uh, you know, I'm not saying they're dead wrong, but I'm, I definitely will explore like more into that probably in 2023. I look forward to it. Yeah. Well, yeah. You mentioned the rivers and I, so I have to bring up the, the, the four angels and the Euphrates. Yes. You hit me with some more numbers and my head hurt. <laughs> But it was a beautiful hurt, and I want all the listeners' head to beautifully hurt also. So go into yeah. where. Uh, yeah, how you sure, drew the sure, connection. sure. So did I make your head hurt? I'm sorry. No, I'm with you, man. We're good. So the fifth. So yeah. So so let me just set the stage, right? So we're in Revelation, back in Revelation, uh, chapter nine, and we have um the fifth trumpet. And what I, what I'd really, again, going back to this idea of the scroll of time and events repeating, I really key in on four events that I believe are the key to understanding revelation. And it's Genesis three fifteen. We talked about this, obviously Genesis six, the days of Noah, but also the days of lot, right? Jesus said also likewise, as it was in the days of lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the son of man. And then the Exodus. And so what I think we see, but, very frequently in the Bible, the days of Noah and days of Lot are referenced together. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about the fifth trumpet and this whole idea of 150 days, that it was kind of a repetition of the judgment of the flood in the days of Noah. At the sixth trumpet, we see these four angels who are bound in the Euphrates who are now released. And it says they were prepared for, for a year, a month, a day, and an hour. Right. And again, going back to the Hebrew calendar, we're looking at 360 days plus 30 days or a month. Each month is 30 days plus a day. Right. That takes us to 391. But then an hour on top of that takes us to 392 days. And so. Again, what is the significance of that? And so what I. Going back to Genesis, looked at is the chronology from the time of the flood, when we're looking in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, where it breaks down the genealogy of the patriarchs from the time of the flood. And we know the timing because it says our fox said was born two years after the flood until the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the days of Lot was 392 years. When you add up those genealogy, when you add up the years in the genealogy of the patriarchs there. And so, um, now, now that will be revised because there's a typo in that calculation in the chapter, but the numbers actually add up to 392. Yeah, I've added so, them up. They're there. 
Yeah, it adds up to 392. And so that, so again, as it was in the days of Noah, likewise in the days of Lot. Fifth trumpet, sixth trumpet. I believe the fifth trumpet is a repetition of the judgment of the days of Noah. And the sixth trumpet is a repetition of the days of Lot. And to even add on to that, one, you have this numerical connection, right? And, and, and mind you, don't get me wrong, it's not lost on me that the angels were prepared for 392 days. The chronology is for 392 years. I show that, you know, when you look at, for example, Numbers 13, right? The giants, the three giants, and God punished Israel. He said it was a day, it's a year for a day, a day for a year. They were punished for, they scouted for 40 days. They got punished for 40 years. In Ezekiel, we see the same thing. Ezekiel has to has to uh, lay on his side for 390 days. Mm -hmm. This is a, a day for a year. Mm -hmm. So this concept of God punishing and exchanging a day for a year is, 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 is consistent with other parts of Scripture. And so I think that's the connection. But, but on top of all of that, when you look at how the armies of these four uh, angels from the Euphrates, how they attack, they kill a third of humanity with fire and brimstone. They have fire and brimstone, the exact judgment that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, I think we're seeing this, what I call quantum repetition through scripture, connecting the days of Lot directly to the heart of the judgments of Revelation. Ouch. Yeah. Oh, man. It's a beautiful ouch, though. Yeah. <laughs> I read that, and I'm not even going to lie. I was like, I'm going to add this up. And I went through, and I was like, oh, my gosh. This is amazing. Wait, you didn't believe him? Hey, I, I don't believe nobody. <laughs> That's right. That's Mama right. said don't Test trust nobody. Things. Test all things. Prove all things. <laughs> I'm all for it. That's awesome. My gosh, yeah. I, I tell you, it's it's amazing because as, as we read and as we look at it, you know, God gives us the answers. It's there. Yeah. But a lot yeah. of it's, you know, encoded or, or some of it's hidden until it's, you know, time for it to be released. Uh, was it Daniel where he tells him to, to bind that book up and it, and, and not release it. Right. So that's right. There's certain things that are not meant for us to know or that for the enemy to at least know until the time is right. For example, if, if Satan was uh, was omniscient, right? He would he never would have Jesus never would have died, because exactly. because cause that's what gave us ultimate victory. So exactly, if he understood yeah. all of what was happening, none of those things would have happened. So God has to hold some things back because the enemy's been around a lot longer than us, and he's a lot smarter than us. And if he can't oh, figure yeah. it out from scripture, we're not going to figure it all out from scripture either. But you know what? We can do our best to try to strengthen can, our faith, yeah. like we said. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said. It's true, right? God has to conceal things because the angels, you know, they've been around thousands, millennia, way longer than we have. Yes. And have exponentially more knowledge than we have. Um, but the one edge we have on them, right, is the spirit of God, right? Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand the word of God, right? The devil doesn't have that in them. Right. It's almost like Saul when he lost God's spirit. He was just off, the, you know, off the deep ends. Mm -hmm. And so so we keep pressing to figure out these mysteries and put these pieces together. And God knows that he's done it in such a way that he can keep his children learning. And the enemy's still not going to have it all figured out until it's too late. So yeah. only in his time. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, I ain't going to keep you much longer, but I know uh, 
I got one more. I always, I always got Fire. one more. <laughs> one more. And so again, I think if you're seeing, this is the Bible telling us again, look, look at this guy. He is a foreshadow of the antichrist. He's battling the, the Messiah, right? David, the son of D Jesus, the son of David for the fate of Israel one-on-one, -on -one, right? Christ versus antichrist. And, um, yeah, so I think, again, it's just a, the Bible showing us that these foreshadows and similitudes, this repetition through through Scripture. Wow. And, of course, he's a, he, and he's a giant. He's, a, the seed, he's the lineage of the seed of the serpent, right? He's a foreshadow. The, the, the battle of the seeds right the there. It's, it's right there. That's the two awesome. seed lines battling it out. I never pieced the whole 666 together. I didn't either until I read his book, and I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Man. That's what we talked about when we started the show, digging yeah, out these yeah. little nuggets and yeah. for a believer that's already, you know, a believed born again Christian and finding all these things, it's like it's awe. You know, I mean that's the only word I can I can say yeah. it's just awe. It's, it's like just, God. It's amazing. It's amazing. You're so big. Yeah. And, you and just... mentioning, of course, he's killed by the you know, of course he's killed by a blow to the head, right? His yes. head is he's hit, but he suffers a wound to the head that kills him, right? Just like Satan is told, just like the Antichrist, right? Mm -hmm. Suffers a mortal wound to the head. So we see again the idea this foreshadowing so and yeah, he's like symbolically killed too the Bible's with the amazing, word of, right? he, he's symbolically killed too with the word of god i, I read i think it was in uh, uh tim stebbin i'm sorry tim in his book he said you know the five stones he said he was combating goliath saying you know he blasphemes you know our our, our god you know this uncircumcised philistine and he was calling out their god and making fun of them and it said he picked the five smooth stones and it said you know they the Torah, you know, was held in high regard, and the Torah was five books. So he said yeah. he picked up five stones that God created and placed there from the foundations That's of the right. world, and he hit him with the, the <laughs> word of God and slayed the Nephilim. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. Amen. That's awesome. Amazing. Well, Ryan, we thank you. We appreciate your time. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, so uh, before we go, uh, let our listeners know uh, where they can find your books, uh, website, any speaking engagements. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, so you can find my main website is just judgmentofthenephilim.com. Uh, and most of my social media is the same. My YouTube channel is Judgment of the Nephilim. My Facebook is Judgment of the Nephilim. My Instagram is Judgment of the Nephilim. Uh, you can find me there. I also do uh, a weekly YouTube show, Thursday Night Theology. I take questions on the Nephilim, on the Fallen Angels, really on anything. Cover all the, ex the, the exciting uh, kind of fringe topics on the scripture. We talk about aliens, talk about really the rapture, all that stuff under the sun. So you as well. And uh, on my website, my books are available on my website, also on Amazon.com. Uh, my my uh, documentaries are available on the website in DVD. They're also on Vimeo. You can find the link on my website, there, but they're on Vimeo on, de on demand as well in digital format. And so uh, I think I mentioned everything. Oh, and there are also study guides for both books as well. So I made my content. So if you want to get, if you want to keep the light, you can watch the documentaries. If you want to just get into the heart, read the book. If you want to really geek out and dig into the Bible, you can get the book and the companion study guide. So or if you're like me, you can get the audio. 
audio book. Or the audio, too. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I forgot about that. Well, we'll be sure to log in to your next Thursday and the audio theology. Book's available on Audible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just, I just, yeah. just now yeah. subscribed well, to his channel there on YouTube. But yeah, we'll log into your next Thursday theology. And, and we're going to ask you about King Og's bed and how many concubines he had. <laughs> I want you to dig into that for us. We thank you for listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. Questions, comments, or future episode ideas, we'd love to hear from you at the dig 423 at gmail.com. If you enjoy our content, don't forget to share, subscribe, and check out our Facebook group at the Dig Podcast. Remember, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. you got to dig.